Father, we want to thank you indeed for the riches of your grace that you have poured upon us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you have made us one with you and so brought us into fellowship with each other. We pray now as we come to your word for this last time that you would help me to preach it faithfully. Help us to understand what true fellowship, true partnership in the gospel really means. And help us to not only understand, but to live it out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you'll agree that the fellowship at ADYC, YAC 3.0 was fantastic. Do you agree? Amen. But what do I mean by great fellowship? What do you mean when you say you agree? We've had great fellowship. I think fellowship is one of the most commonly misunderstood Christian words. In Malaysian churches, fellowship normally means makan, exactly. So what we're doing now, you know, we've been singing God's praises, we've been listening to God's word, we call that church. But when we go out there and we get our kueh and so on, we call that fellowship. Or when we go out and we, you know, we go around the town shopping mall, buying bags, whatever, or we go play badminton, we call that fellowship. Yeah, when we come back into the here and read the Bible, that's church. But most of the time when Christians makan after church or they go shopping more or they go and play sport, they're not talking about the Bible, are they? They're not praying for each other. There's nothing that is particularly Christian about the activity at all. If we were with non-Christians, we would call it friendship. We would call it hanging out. But because we're with Christians, we call it fellowship. We easily confuse friendship and fellowship, I take it, because we haven't understood what fellowship really means. Fellowship, we will see, it's not just eating, and it's not just hanging out, it's about being partners together in the gospel. And remember, this has been the big theme of this letter. We've been talking a lot about what it means to be gospel partners, striving together to see the gospel advance. Remember how he began the letter in chapter 1 and verse 3 on the screen. He said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And the word therefore, partnership in Greek, the word koinonia, I'm sure you're familiar with it, Everywhere else in the Bible, we translate that word as fellowship. True fellowship is about partnering together in Christ. It's about recognizing the deep bond that we have with each other because we have a common faith in Jesus and we have a common mission to make Jesus known. And so we saw in the second talk that this gospel partnership meant that we were to strive side by side to see the gospel advance, like those Roman uh, soldiers with their shields standing together, pushing forward to see more and more people come to know Jesus. That's what gospel partnership was about. 
And so we saw that gospel partnership means that as we strive for the gospel, then we will face suffering as well. Because there are opponents to the gospel. Non-believers will persecute Christians. And even inside the church, we will find false teachers who bring different gospels like gospel plus. And so as we come to this final chapter, we are given one final window into what gospel partnership looks like. And in particular, the peace, the contentment, the joy that comes from gospel partnership. So let's begin then. The first point, gospel partnership means pursuing peace. Gospel partnership means pursuing peace. And Paul lists here three ways that we can pursue peaceful gospel partnership as Christians. And the first one we see is that peace comes through working out conflict. Have a look at verse 2. He says, I entreat you, Olia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have laboured side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, I think division among Christians is one of the saddest realities in church life. When Christians who are meant to be united together, meant to be standing firm side by side, striving for the gospel together, well, when they instead turn on each other, then that is a very sad reality indeed. Hopefully the battery will hold out here. Whatever the issues are, whoever is right and whoever is wrong, Division in church is very sad, isn't it? It causes a great deal of harm and pain. Throughout this letter, we've seen that Paul wants us to be united in the gospel. Remember chapter 1, verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life, next slide, uh, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Can we go to the next slide? Thank you. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that when I, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So these women here, Euodia, Syntyche, they're meant to be co-workers. They've laboured side by side with the Apostle Paul. Their, their names are written in the Book of Life. These two women are going to be spending eternity together with Paul and all other Christians. But now their fellowship on earth is frustrated by fighting. It's a very tragic situation. It's a very sad state of affairs. Instead of striving together for the Gospel, they're fighting with each other. Now, I guess we don't know what the fight was really about. It must have been pretty serious that Paul had to write about it in a public letter that the whole church would get to know about this. But notice, even then, Paul doesn't take sides here. After all, when there's a conflict and we take sides, that usually just makes things worse. Rather, he addresses both of these women and he says, please, work it out. Agree in the Lord. Get along. Find a common mind. Because you are brothers and sisters in Christ. You're meant to be united. The goal is not winning the argument, but working out the issues 
reconciling the relationship. Now, of course, it, it, it's different if we're talking about false teaching or those who are denying the gospel in their lives, who, who are compromising on the truth of God's word. Uh, simply to avoid a conflict is not a sign of godliness. See, when it, when it comes to false teaching, when there's gospel plus going around or some other false teaching, yes, we must stand our ground. We must fight for the truth. We must stand on the gospel, as we were saying in that theme song. Uh, and we must understand that those who stand on the word of God, those who hold fast to the truth, they are not the divisive ones. They are not the ones who are dividing the church. It is the false teacher, those who depart from the word of God, those who live contrary to the word of God, those are the ones who are dividing the church, not those who stand on the truth. But Euodia and Syntyche here, they're not false teachers. They're Paul's co-workers. They're true believers who have believed the genuine gospel. Paul says their names are written in the book of life. These women are going to heaven. And so Paul pleads with them, work it out. Please, talk through the issues. Agree in the Lord. You see, when we face conflict with another Christian, we don't just defriend them on Facebook, if you still use that, or block them on WhatsApp, or just leave the church and go somewhere else so you can live your separate lives and never have to see each other again. We work hard to express our gospel partnership by reconciling with one another. And, and Paul knows that sometimes a neutral mediator might be needed here. He talks about this unnamed true companion. He asks him to help these women sort it out. Because some conflicts are not easily solved, are they? Sometimes we feel deep hurt. We feel it's all the other person's fault and, and not mine. And so sometimes someone else, a third party, needs to come in and, and help people come together. And Paul says, if that's what's required, do it. Work for restoration. So let me ask you, is there another Christian uh, like that with whom you are in conflict right now? Perhaps in the church, perhaps another Christian in your family, or somewhere, someone else. You believe the same gospel but you're living in conflict with them. God exhorts us this morning to work it out. If we're partners in the gospel together, let's strive to be one. Yes, we'll need to discuss the issues. Yes, we might need a mediator. Yes, both sides will probably need to repent and ask for forgiveness. Yes, it will take great humility to say, I was wrong. Yes, it will need empathy to try and understand things from the other person's point of view. And yes, it may take a great deal of effort to overcome all the feelings of hurt and disappointment because of what they've done. And sometimes it may be so hard that reconciliation is not possible. And no matter how hard it is, we should try. Paul urges us to work out our conflicts, to agree in the Lord... Because we are brothers and sisters in Christ, headed to heaven, we will spend eternity together. And since we'll be seeing each other there, we may as well work it out now. Because you cannot experience peace when you're living at war with another Christian.
Well, secondly, we see here that peace comes through prayer. Peace comes through prayer. He says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Next slide. Thankfulness is one of the great marks of the Christian. So often if you talk to see in the world, there's a lot of bitterness, there's a lot of disappointment, there's a lot of discontent. In the world outside, people complain, people grumble. You just need to go on social media and you'll find a lot of that. But Christians are meant to be different. Christians are meant to be people who rejoice. Christians are meant to be people who find things to be thankful for. And joy has been such a big theme in this letter, isn't it? In every single chapter, we've been talking about the joy of knowing Jesus, the joy of being gospel partners. But why does Paul come back to joy here? Why does he say, rejoice in the Lord always? Again, I will say rejoice. I take it it's because rejoicing makes a very big difference when you're in conflict with another Christian. Thankfulness in the Lord can preserve and rebuild our gospel partnership. And so when I'm in conflict, it's always good to step back and ask these questions. What can I be thankful for? What can I thank God for that person who's hurt me? What can I thank God for this church with all its flaws? What can I thank God for what Christ has done for me? Because there will always be something to thank God for. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's such a startling statement that Paul feels he needs to write it twice. You know, how can you rejoice in the Lord always? Maybe he wrote the wrong thing. Maybe he didn't really mean it. He means it. Rejoice in the Lord always, in all circumstances, no matter what is happening around us. We are to gaze at Jesus, the Lord Jesus, remember what he's done for us, and be thankful. But how can we do that when we're suffering? How can we do that when we're persecuted? How can we do that when we're depressed? Paul doesn't mean here that we will always be happy. We've spent a lot of time this week talking about mental illness. It's an illness. We'll see in the following verses that sometimes we will be anxious. And many times we will suffer in our life. And we shouldn't be like, oh, I'm so happy that I'm suffering. I'm so happy that I lost my job and everything's going bad for me. That would, that would not be a sign of mental health, would it? We're not called to rejoice in our circumstances. We're called to rejoice through our circumstances. Big difference. Not rejoice in my circumstances, but through my circumstances. And we are to rejoice in the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to remember all the good things he's done for us, how wonderful it is to be a Christian, and let that fill us with joy, even though everything around us might be going bad. Rejoice that he died for you. Rejoice that you are his child. Rejoice that you're going to heaven and there'll be no more suffering, depression, anxiety, or any other sufferings there. 
Rejoice that if, even if you're in conflict with another Christian, you won't be having any conflict in heaven. Rejoice in the Lord. We can be joyful even when we're in difficult circumstances. And remember where Paul is writing this. He's in, he's in prison, in a jail cell. He doesn't know whether he's going to live or he's about to be executed. But Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And he adds in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And if you've got a different translation, it might say, let your gentleness be known to all. The idea here is that we are to be gracious to one another. Instead of assuming the worst of each other, we are to assume the best. It's a very good rule in personal relationships. Often when you're upset with someone, you assume, well, you minimize the good things that they do. They must have bad motives. You maximize the bad things. You think, well, they must be really doing this to hurt me. Assume the best. And when you suffer or when you're misunderstood, remember that the Lord is at hand. Jesus is coming back. Uh, this is a reference to Psalm 145. There we're told that God hears the cries of his people. He preserves those who loves him. He satisfies them with good things. God is generous. He is kind. He is faithful. We don't pray to a God who is distant from our struggles. We don't have a God who's up there in heaven with blinded eyes and he doesn't see all the pain and the suffering we're going through. The Lord is at hand. He came and drew near to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us his Holy Spirit in our hearts. And Jesus is coming back again to bring us to be with him. The Lord is at hand. So rejoice in the Lord. And as we rejoice in Christ, we're also told here to pray in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, to say here, don't be anxious, surely that assumes that sometimes we're going to get anxious, doesn't it? Anxiety is a normal human response. When you feel like you're losing control in life, you feel anxious. We can get anxious about the money, we can get anxious about work, we can get anxious about our family or a relationship if it seems like it's not going well. We can be anxious about our health, we can be anxious about the future. And I take it most of us have felt pretty anxious over the last two years as we've gone through the pandemic. We all get anxious. I get anxious. Some of us get more anxious than others. Some of us have more severe forms of mental illness called anxiety. But we're all anxious people. It's how we are as human beings. And what matters here is not that we feel anxious, but what we do with our anxiety. And here we're told that when we're feeling anxious, we should come to the Lord in prayer. Prayer brings peace. When we pray, we come to the one who is in control of everything. We're not in control. We can't change all the circumstances. We can't predict the future. But when we pray, we talk to the one who has everything in his hands. All-knowing, 
all-powerful, who knows every day that's going to happen to us, who is wise, loving, and good. We take our problems, all the things we're anxious about, and we say, here, God, I give them to you. And as we do that, we realize all is not lost. There is still hope. If we are a Christian, we always have hope, no matter how dark, no matter how bleak. When there's a sovereign, loving God in your life, there is always reason to go on. We can turn to Him for help and hope at any time. He will hear us. Note it says, note it says here, pray to God. Uh, don't pray to the saints. Don't pray to your ancestors. Notice, uh, I think you can go back to this. Notice it says we can pray about everything. God is powerful enough to answer the biggest prayer. And he is loving enough to care about the seemingly trivial, the smallest thing. There's nothing too big or too small that you can't pray about. Notice we have to offer prayers, supplication, requests. All these things basically mean asking God for stuff, either for ourselves or for others. And notice we have to pray with thanksgiving. We don't just come to God with our shopping list. Okay, today, God, I want A, B, C, D, and E. Thank you very much. I want a nice boyfriend or girlfriend, lots of money, good job, good health. Thank you, God. We don't just bring our shopping list. We thank Him for what He's already done for us. It was wonderful how we did that last night. We, we, we thanked God that He brought us here safely and it didn't rain for for the group photo and all that. That was such a wonderful thing, such a Christian thing to do. There's always things to thank God for making us his children, for giving us food and shelter, for giving us friends who will listen to us, for God hearing our prayers and answering them. When we're in the deepest pit, there is always something that we can thank God. God. At least we're not in the pit alone. So what are you anxious about at the moment? Have you prayed to God about it? I think our first instinct, at least my first instinct in the midst of anxiety, is to try and work it out myself. See if I can get, you know, uh, do all the things I can to solve the problem. If I can't solve it myself, then I pray to God. That's the wrong way around, isn't it? In the midst of our anxiety, we should pray. He is sovereign. He has it in control, not me. We might not be able to sort it out, but it's firmly in his hands. And as we bring to God our anxious thoughts in prayer, there's a wonderful promise here for us in verse 7. Now the next verse. Verse 7, please. Thank you. The, The peace of God which surpasses, next slide, thank you, peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the assurance that God will keep us trusting in Jesus no matter what situation we face. That's what it means here. He'll guard our hearts and minds in Christ. He will keep us trusting in Jesus. Suffering can often be a time when people leave the Christian faith. I think Adrian was sharing the other night, one of these who said, don't talk to me about God. I don't want to believe in God. How could I believe in God when this is happening to me? But here's the promise. As we 
come to God in our suffering. He will keep us trusting in him, even in the midst of whatever difficult situation. I wonder if you remember that famous hymn, What a Friend We Have in, in Jesus. Next slide. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. It's a great hymn, isn't it? Prayer is a very important medicine to take for an anxious heart. Peace comes through prayer. Well, Paul describes a third path to peace in verses 8 and 9, and that is peace through gospel thinking. Peace through gospel thinking. Verse 8, next slide. He says, finally, brothers. Next slide, please. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. Paul is asking us to consider what do we fill our minds with each day? What do we think about? Because what we think about will inevitably shape, as we've heard, our emotions and our behaviour. So what do you spend your time thinking about? What do you consume on TV or social media? What TV shows do you watch? What movies entertain you? What songs do you listen to? What do you look at on the internet? What computer games do you play? And so on. So much of the stuff that we watch is actually harmful for us. You think about it, full of swearing, full of violence, sex, drugs, adultery. Every show these days has homosexuality on it. Lying, stealing. And yet how much time do we spend consuming all of that stuff? Maybe four, five hours a day. Perhaps even at the conference we managed to slip in four hours of social media. Maybe you're getting it right now, I don't know. At the same time, how much time do you spend reading the Bible? Talking to other Christians about God's Word. Thinking about God. Praying to God. It's perhaps maybe ten minutes. Half an hour if we're being generous. It doesn't really stack up, does it? Four or five hours watching violent stuff, 10, 15 minutes with the Word of God. If we are to think and live in a Christian way that brings glory to God, then we must be filling our lives with the Word of God. The moment that we stop listening to the Word of God is the moment that we will find our hearts and our minds and our lives taken away to the ways of the world. And instead of having peace, which God promises, we'll very quickly find ourselves in strife and turmoil. It's only the word of God that will encourage you to work out your conflicts. You know, if you, if you go out in a non-Christian world, they'll say, cut off that toxic relationship. You know, they're bad for you. Only the word of God will encourage you to forgive, to love, to turn to God in prayer, to rejoice in Jesus. You're not going to find that in any Hollywood or Korean movie, are you? And in verse 9, Paul holds himself up as an example to imitate here. Verse, uh, verse 9. 
what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul wants us to think about what he wrote and how he lived, as we've been doing these few days. Think about his life of sacrificial service. Think about how he could rejoice in all circumstances, even in jail. And the way that we can think about how Paul lived is by reading the scriptures, reading the letters that he wrote. And so I want to leave you with a little challenge as we go off from this conference. If you've not already got into a good habit of reading the Bible, praying, can I encourage you, try again. I'm not trying to make you guilty that you've stopped. I know we all struggle with this. Take it as an encouragement to try again. Uh, I like to listen to something called the Daily Liturgy Podcast. You can find it on Spotify or other platforms. And it will take you through a reading from the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Gospel, along with a prayer of confession, a prayer of adoration, and a benediction in 10 minutes every day. It stirs my soul. It reminds me of the Word of God. It's a wonderful thing. If you don't like reading, podcasts, daily liturgy podcasts. And notice again the promise here in verse 9. It says, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. It's wonderful, isn't it? If you're looking for peace, then fill your mind with the word of God and come to him in prayer. Well, secondly, we see we are to express our gospel partnership through generous giving. We are to express our gospel partnership through generous giving. And as Paul closes this letter, he thanks God for their partnership with him through their financial gifts. And Paul is very careful here how he thanks them. On the one hand, Paul is overjoyed with their generous giving. Look at, for example, verse uh, 10. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You indeed were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity, opportunity to show it. Paul is genuinely grateful for their loving concern, for the money that they have sent him through Epaphroditus. But at the same time, he's being very careful not to communicate that he's thanking them for the money because, well, he wants some more money. It's, it's easy to do that, isn't it? Say, oh, thank you for that wonderful meal that we had last night. I hope that encourages them to take me for another meal tomorrow. <laughs> now, Paul is truly content here. So it goes on in verse 11. Next slide. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What do you think is the secret that Paul has learned here. What's the secret of facing any and every situation? It's the secret of contentment. Paul rejoices in the generous gifts of his gospel partners, but he doesn't love money and he doesn't need it. He's genuinely happy when he has nothing. 
when he's in poverty and he's in prison. Because he has Jesus. The thing of surpassing value that makes everything else just look like rubbish. He's so unlike many gospel preachers today. Paul was not in ministry for money. He preached the gospel because it was true. He preached the gospel because he loved Jesus. He didn't preach the gospel because he was hoping to get a nice bag and a love gift at the end of the session. And it's in that context that we must understand verse 13. Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's a favourite verse, isn't it? You walk into any Christian bookshop, it'll be on the bookmarks, it'll be on the pictures, people will put it up on the wall. When there's a word of encouragement that you want to give your friends, you'll pull out this verse. You can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's often taken to be a promise of God that there's absolutely nothing that you can't do Whatever the challenge you face, God will help you to overcome it. God will help you to to succeed. If only you set your mind to it, you can. No can'ts. But is this really a blanket promise of health and prosperity? If it is, then why has Paul just spoken of being in need and being brought low. And why on earth is he in a prison cell, unsure if he's going to be released or he's going to be executed? Did Paul himself, who wrote this, lack the faith to claim this promise of God for the victorious Christian life? Of course not. So when Paul says here, He can do all things through him who strengthens me. Then what does he mean? He means that he can be content in every situation. That's what he means. He can do all things. He can rejoice when he's got plenty. He can be happy when he's in need. Knowing Jesus, Paul can persevere with joy in any and every circumstance, good or bad. That's the secret of contentment. That's what it means to do all things through him who strengthens me. So have you learned the secret of contentment? Uh, Or are you you, constantly wanting more? Better marks, more money, bigger house, better phone, Better job. People jump from one job to the next, isn't it? Well, this job will be better. And it's the same. You got five A's for your, for your marks. You think, oh, I wanted more. You got 98%. You're angry because it wasn't 99. You're discontent because you're single. Or you're discontent because your marriage partner is not who you hope them to be. The Gospel of Jesus teaches us the secret of contentment. And true contentment doesn't come when you have all your dreams fulfilled. We just saw all of those famous actors who have everything and they're still depressed. 
We don't find contentment when you already have the house, you already have the car, you have the children, you have the career, you have the, the fame, you have the approval of others. That's not when you find contentment. True contentment is not found in having things. True contentment is found in having Jesus, whether or not you have things, you see. Because Jesus is the one of surpassing value. I think that's why he calls it the secret of contentment. What's the secret of contentment? It's Jesus. Compared to him, nothing else is of value. Nothing else is ultimately important. If you have him, you can be content. Have you learned the secret of contentment? The best way to learn contentment is to be generous to others. I remember in my, my younger years, I was something of a hoarder. I'd become very easily attached to things, uh, especially things that people gave me. I, mean, I had every single birthday card that I've been ever given, even though it said, Dear Tim, Happy Birthday, whatever. <laughs> and I found it hard to give them away, and I ended up with all of this stuff. But I discovered as I had to leave Australia and come to Malaysia and basically get rid of all of my things, that the more generous I was with my possessions, not only was I less enslaved to them, but I was more joyful too. And we saw that just now, isn't it? It's more joy, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus said that, it's quoted in Acts 20. And as we give, it brings joy and it brings Contentment. It's similar for me. I, some of you know that I've been diagnosed with celiac disease. That happened in 2014. It's a genetic disease, an autoimmune disease, that basically means that I can't eat gluten. My gluten is wheat, barley, malt, uh, and basically anything with soy sauce, oyster sauce, etc. As you can guess, that wipes out nearly all Malaysian foods, except for Iban food, praise God. <laughs> <laughs> now, you'd think that having a disease like that would make you more bitter or more disappointed. But actually what I found was having that disease made me more content. So that now even something simple like the, the committee took me out for a bowl of Sarawak laksa, better than Penang laksa, I guess. <laughs> it made me so happy, you know. Because the community put into so much effort to find something that I could actually eat. And I had the wonderful opportunity then to experience the love and generosity of other Christians. What a blessing. But contentment's not a battle that's won once and for all. It's still easy for it to grow. It's still easy for me to think, oh, I wish I had a more successful ministry. Or I wish I had a better house to live in than, than the one that the church gives me. Or I had more money, I could buy better gadgets or whatever it is. We need to learn and we need to relearn the secret of contentment. As we come again and again to Jesus and remember what he's done for us and allow that to persevere us through every situation. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Doesn't mean we will overcome every obstacle in life. You will never have any failures. You will never have any mental or physical illnesses. It does not mean that. 
but it does mean God will give you contentment, joy, peace in and through it as you keep coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as Paul uh, talks about his contentment, he doesn't want his contentment to devalue how thankful he is. So he keeps jumping back between these two things. Verse 14, he says, Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. You Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only, even in Thessalonica. You sent me help for my needs once and again. So although Paul was content with whatever he had, he was in genuine need. He did need their financial support. As he went to other churches, like the church in Corinth, he didn't want to burden the church by asking them to pay him. And he didn't want to have asking for, for money from them to compromise his gospel message so they thought that he was only doing it for money. And no other church had partnered with him. He needed this support. Without it, without it he would have been in a very difficult situation. He was content. He didn't expect the giving. But he certainly valued it. It was needed. It was important. Friends, we must understand that generous giving is a vital part of being a gospel partner. Generous giving is a vital part of being a gospel partner. Real fellowship is about far more than sharing a meal together. A big part of fellowship is giving away your money. Using your money not to serve yourself, but to serve others. Remember we talked about the path to joy in talk two. You remember it? Joy, Jesus, others, yourself. That's how you're meant to use your money too. Jesus first, others second, yourself last. Are you giving generously to support the gospel workers in your church? You know, you'll only give generously to gospel ministry if you are content with what you have. Because if you give generously to the church, there are going to be things that you can't have anymore. But giving generously to support gospel work brings great joy, both for the, the giver of the gift, yes, and the receiver of the gift too. It's been about 12, I think, years now I've been in, in full-time ministry. I used to work as a computer programmer after I finished university. And over that 12 years, I've experienced the amazing generosity of Christians back in Australia who love Jesus, who love Malaysia, and therefore have given money year after year so that, so that me and my family can be here to preach the gospel. It has brought us untold joy. And it's meant that many in Malaysia, like you right now, are able to hear the gospel because of their generous giving. So you might not have the gifts yourself to enter full-time ministry, but you can still be a real partner in the gospel as you give to gospel work and as you pray for it. Now, as we come to verse 17 and 18, Paul again qualifies that he's not saying all this simply 
to, to get more money for, for, from them. He's, he's, he's amply supplied. What Paul wants, what I want, is for you to glorify God in your lives, including how you use your money to serve him. I'm, I'm not interested if you give the money to me. For our generous giving is not only an expression of gospel partnership, it's an important part of worshipping God. Verse 17 says that. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment I am, and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and in pleasing to God. Their giving is described like the Old Testament sacrifices. Again, it doesn't mean they're earning their way to, to heaven somehow. Jesus has offered the one perfect sacrifice for sin on the cross. But in the Old Testament, there were not just sacrifices for sins. There was thanksgiving sacrifices as well, where you, you dedicated yourself to God and showed your thanksgiving to him. And that's what Paul means here. Our giving in response to the gospel is an act of worship. And it pleases God. Now, what matters is not the amount. What matters is the heart. That Paul doesn't say here, give 10%, does he? In fact, in the New Testament, we're never called to give a specific percentage. We're called to be generous. And generous might mean more than 10%. Or less if we are very poor. You don't need to wait until you have a good job. You're raking in the money. Then you'll give to church. A wise person said to me, if you're not content and generous with the little that you have, then you will not be generous when you have much. It's not about the amount. It's about the heart. Are you content and therefore sacrificial? Do you love Jesus and the gospel? And so you use your money to serve him instead of to serve your own worldly desires. Because Jesus has given us so much. He gave us his life on the cross. We are indebted to him. We could never pay for the debt of sin. But he paid it for us. All that we are, all that we have, belongs to him. And so as we come to the end of this passage, he reminds us that all our money is God's anyway. Verse 19 says this. Verse 19, thanks. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, every week when we take the collection in our Anglican churches, remember the words that we pray from 1 Chronicles. All things come from you and of your own do we give you. See, whatever we give to God is only whatever he has given to us. He's let you have the money for a while. It's on loan to you, if you like, but it's his money. It's to be used for his purposes. And as we give that money, as we're generous, we trust God. He will provide for us as he provided that money in the first place. And here is a wonderful promise. God will supply our needs. It doesn't mean that God will give you everything you want. You give money to church, it will be multiplied back to you a hundred times. The prosperity teachers love to say that. It doesn't mean give your money to church, no more problems in your life, that blessings will flow. No. 
But God promises to provide for you, just as he provided for Paul through the generosity of his people. So we live in the church, we love one another, God will provide for us through his people. And ultimately, he will provide for us eternal life and a place in his kingdom. No wonder Paul can't help but praise God. To God, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, as we conclude, I think they want me to conclude this final talk on the gospel-shaped life. I want to end this talk in the same way I have ended all the others, by reminding you that the gospel-shaped life is the life of joy. Joy dominates this letter, and it has dominated this last chapter too. Paul began, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Paul rejoiced in the gospel partnership of the Philippian Christians. And I want to finish with verse 1, which I actually skipped. I don't know if you were really noticing. Why did I skip verse 1? But he says this, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. My beloved. It's beautiful. These Christians are his joy. And they stand firm together as they rejoice in the Lord and thank God for their gospel partnership together. Do you see? The Christian life is not one of duty. Where I, have, I do what I have to do because my pastor asks me to and I don't want him to be angry. Or I want to keep God happy by doing certain tasks. If you serve God just because you feel you have to as some duty, guess what? You will burn out. You can't keep going like that. But if you have the joy of knowing Jesus, the joy of the gospel, then no sacrifice will burn you out. You'll be filled with joy and peace, even as you lose everything. So if you've lost your joy in serving Jesus, then can I ask you as we finish, look again at Jesus. Gaze upon him. Rejoice in him. Think about how wonderful Jesus is and what he has done for you. Rejoice that you are a child of God. Rejoice that you can be a gospel partner no matter what your circumstances are. I hope you see fellowship is about much more than hanging out and eating together. Fellowship is about loving Christ together, delighting in Jesus together, humbly serving him together, proclaiming him together, giving generously to gospel work together, See, fellowship is not what's about to happen over lunch. Fellowship is what's happening right now. And fellowship is what will continue as you go out from here to serve Christ together. So will you be a gospel partner? You don't have to be in full-time ministry like me to be a gospel partner. You can be involved in promoting the gospel as you share your faith on the bus as you go back as you generously give your money, as you use your time and your gifts, as you offer God your prayers, we can all be partners. We should be partners in the gospel. And at the same time, though, perhaps some of us should leave our jobs to pursue full-time ministry. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. 
think I was told there's 45 parishes in Sarawak. That just seems hardly enough to reach all of the people here, let alone Malaysia, let alone the world. Life is short. In what will seem like a moment, you'll be sitting in a conference like this, but it won't be young adults conference. It'll be golden circle. Ask some of the leaders, they'll tell you what I mean. One day our time on earth will be almost done. And so how will you maximise your life for Christ and the gospel? How will you make your life count for the glory of God? Don't waste your life on trivial things. Make sure you live a a gospel-shaped life. A life for heaven, not a life for now. So may God use his word to transform us, to transform this wonderful state and country that we live, and indeed transform the world with his glorious gospel. Let me leave this. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the generous God who has given us all that we have. Thank you, Lord, for our health, our family and friends. Thank you for this conference that we could come to together. And thank you supremely for your Son. Thank you for forgiving our sins. Thank you for adopting us as your children. Thank you for giving us your peace. And so, Lord, help us to live gospel-shaped lives. Lives for heaven and not for now. Lives for others, not lives for ourselves. Lives for your glory, not lives for ours. Lord, help us to be content with what we have. Help us to be generous towards others and help us to to stand as one, working out our conflicts so that we, we work together for the advance of your gospel. Lord, please transform this nation. Use us to bring many more to know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.